Hey, y'all, this is CC from Murder City Pod, straight out of that Houston, Texas. You're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So, let's get started. I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to on the show by spreading the word about California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course, supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently about 20 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as $1, you can gain access to all of those episodes as well. This week, I'd like to thank Lee, Angie, and Mary for joining Patreon, and Andrea H. for increasing her pledge to the next tier. And if Patreon isn't your thing and you'd like to make a one-time donation to help support, you can do so through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again for all of your support. And don't forget to check out the novel that I am narrating, A Sickness in Time. It is being released one chapter a week in podcast form and is available on all of your favorite podcast directories. And if you are enjoying this novel, then you should also check out Seeing by Moonlight, also written by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle, and it is also available as a podcast. And if you like the books, your iTunes reviews are greatly appreciated. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed the little series I had last week involving those bank robberies, the Nixon's Millions and the Stopwatch Gang, as much as I enjoyed researching them. Isn't it interesting how many things people used to be able to get away with in the past? Breaking into banks, eluding capture, crossing back and forth over international borders, and assuming new identities, too. It's not as easy these days. We leave a digital and genetic footprint pretty much everywhere we go. I even read an article that since DNA testing has advanced so much, and testing has become so easy and commonplace that people practically even breathing within the proximity of a crime scene are going to have traces of their DNA detected and identified. And we really aren't too far off from a place where cops are just going to start swabbing around, even at the pettiest of crime scenes, to pick up DNA evidence as a part of their investigation. 
DNA isn't just going to be a thing tested for murders and rapes. You steal a bike, they might just swab those handlebars for your skin cells and sweat. So watch out. Another thing that isn't so easy to pull off these days is assuming a new identity. In decades past, if people wanted to drop out of life or, for whatever reason, become a whole new person, often they would go searching through old obituaries and public libraries, looking for a person who died young, maybe a child who died while still a toddler who was born around the same year, take that name, obtain a new copy of that child's birth certificate, and boom, brand new identity. Then you could just take that birth certificate and go get the social security card, pick up a new identification card, and you're pretty much set. It's hard to do that now. You just can't walk into the county registrar's office and apply for a new birth certificate without other forms of proof of who you are. But there was a time when it was indeed that simple. And in all of the podcasts that we've listened to, we've probably heard of cases where a person did exactly that. I didn't get too much into it when we talked about the stopwatch gang, but that's how each of them procured new identities. They went to the library, they hopped on microfiche machines, looked up obituaries and assumed identities of dead children. They got away with it a lot. There was a case that I heard about on a podcast. Well, there's been a couple of cases. I want to say I think I heard them both on Thinking Sideways. And both of them really stuck with me for a long time. They both do because of how they ended. But I think I will only have time to talk about one of them today. And maybe if I have the time, I'll discuss the second one in a bonus episode attached to this. This particular episode that we're listening to today is kind of going to be two stories in one. But before I get to the story that brought me to the subject, I wanted to talk to you about a woman named Lori Erica Ruff, a.k.a. Kimberly McLean. Kimberly was from Philadelphia, born October 16, 1968. By the time she turned 18, she decided that she no longer wanted to live at home as she was not getting along well with her mom and stepdad. But she just didn't want to leave and go someplace else away from her family. She wanted to start all over again as a new person with a new life and a new identity. She just simply did not want to be found ever. Over the course of the next couple years, she would search for just the right person to become reborn as. Kimberly is referred to as an identity thief, but that doesn't really tell the whole story, though it is accurate. A two-year-old named Becky Sue Turner died along with two of her siblings in a house fire in 1971 in Fife, Washington. So Kimberly, looking for someone new to become, came across Becky's story in May of 1988 and decided that she would resurrect her from the dead. She headed to Becky's birthplace of Bakersfield, California, and obtained a copy of her birth certificate. From there, Kimberly went to Idaho, where she used the birth certificate to apply for and receive an Idaho identification card on June 16, 1988. 
A few weeks later, Kimberly traveled to Dallas, Texas, where on July 5, 1988, she went before a judge as Becky Sue Turner and had her name legally changed to Lori Erica Kennedy. One week later, under her new legal name, she obtained a social security number. And from then on, Kimberly Marie McLean was no more. Now known as Lori, Kimberly got her Texas driver's license in 1989. In 1990, she obtained her GED and then enrolled in Dallas County Community College. And then in 1997, she would graduate with her bachelor's in business administration from the University of Texas at Arlington. There had been some murmurings online during this time that Kimberly supported herself by working as an exotic dancer and some would point to the fact that it was later determined that she had undergone breast enhancement surgery, though I would argue that just because she had breast implants didn't necessarily mean she was an exotic dancer. So whether or not she was or wasn't is just conjecture. I believe it's true, but it's really not relevant. However, it would explain how she managed to support herself with everything that she was doing at this time. While in a Bible study class in 2003, Kimberly would meet Blake Ruff, and his family was pretty well known in the social circles of East Texas. Kimberly did not reveal very much about herself to Blake. She said she was from Arizona, and both of her parents had already passed away, and she was an only child. Other than that, all Blake knew about her past was that her dad worked as a stockbroker and he wasn't really that good at it. Blake's family was a different story. They were a really close-knit brood. They were warm, friendly, hospitable. The rough kids all attended boarding schools and were raised in country clubs. They had homes in Dallas and Shreveport. They were into the banking and real estate business, and like I said, they were well-known members of the community. Blake, he had attended college at the University of Texas in Austin, where he earned his bachelor's degree in economics, as well as attended DeVry, where he studied telecom management. And from there, he worked for Verizon in their commercial accounts department. His family would say he's a down-to-earth guy, easygoing, reliable, trustworthy, and honest. When asked what attracted him to Kimberly, all he ever said about it was that she was tall and attractive. That was it. But those who knew Blake would say that's the way he was. He never really had much to say about anything. Blake had an identical twin brother, David. And oftentimes when David did something, Blake would do the same exact thing. When David bought a particular kind of car, Blake would buy the same one. When David joined a Bible study, met a woman and married her, well then so did Blake. When he met Kimberly, or Lori as he knew her, but to keep it simple for the duration of this episode, I'm going to call her Kimberly. Blake's family was interested. They wanted to get to know her. They asked Blake and Kimberly over for lunch one time. His mom, Nancy, she had some questions. Tell us about yourself, your childhood, your family, where you're from, all the usual questions. 
Her parents were dead. She had no siblings, no aunts, no uncles, no cousins, no nothing. Where did she go to high school? She didn't. She skipped it. Went straight to college. And that's pretty much how the lunch date went. Nancy asked questions. Kimberly dodged them. And that was that. The roughs didn't know what to make of this woman with a past that had so many blank spaces. It didn't seem to bother Blake, though. That's just the way he was. Kimberly had explained that she had destroyed all the photos she had of her family because her life had been so terrible. And he just left it at that. It was painful, but it made sense. So as you can see, Kimberly found a guy who would just take what she had to say at face value and not ask too many questions because that's exactly what she needed in order to continue going on as Lori Kennedy. So when the couple decided to get married, Nancy, well, she wanted an announcement in the paper. It would say something along the lines of Blake Ruff, son of John and Nancy, to wed Lori Kennedy, daughter of... Who? Well, no. Lori refused to allow her name to be printed in the paper, telling Nancy that they just didn't do things like that. Even though many questions continued to linger about Kimberly, Blake was taken with her. And in less than a year after meeting, the couple would tie the knot in January of 2004. There were only three people at the wedding. Kimberly... Blake, and the minister who married them. After the couple got married, they moved to the small town of Leonard, Texas, population 1900, located in the northeastern part of the state, more than 100 miles or 160 kilometers away from Blake's parents. And their neighbors, they immediately picked up on the fact that something was a bit odd about the new couple on their road. Blake, he was pretty friendly, but Kimberly, not so much. As a matter of fact, not at all. She would not come out of the house until the evening. She would walk around the perimeter of their property and do everything she could to avoid eye contact with everyone. Neighbors would report in six years, none of them ever socialized with a couple. One neighbor only interacted with them once. Kimberly simply didn't like being around people, and for the most part, she worked from home, doing whatever it was she was doing from her computer. Kimberly told people she was a marketing consultant, but mostly she operated some sort of in-home business as a mystery shopper. What she would do is test products, bring them home and try them, or order food from a restaurant and eat it at home, and then submit her report on the services she received. Kimberly did, however, want to be a mom. The couple tried several times, but they struggled to conceive, and she did have several miscarriages as well. Eventually, they underwent fertility treatments, and in the summer of 2008, Blake and Kimberly had a baby girl. Blake was able to tell right away that Kimberly had very little to no experience being around babies. She didn't seem to know how to hold her, and Kimberly was overly protective of their new baby as well. She would never allow anyone else to hold her, and Blake's family, especially his mom Nancy, 
She did not like this at all. Kimberly would never let Grandma come and babysit. As a matter of fact, not once did Kimberly ever leave the baby alone with her, ever. And this was Nancy's ninth grandchild, so she was like, come on, I think I know what I'm doing. But no, Kimberly wouldn't have it. Kimberly did love dressing up her daughter and taking her out for tea. She was constantly taking pictures of her and with her. There is no doubt being a mom was truly Kimberly's greatest and only joy in life. But as time wore on, the friction between Blake's family and Kimberly grew worse. At family gatherings, Kimberly would often excuse herself to go take a long nap or she would avoid the gatherings altogether. Blake thought she couldn't be comfortable around others because she wasn't even comfortable in her own skin. Looking back and knowing what we would eventually learn about Kimberly, that's actually quite an astute observation on the part of Blake. But at the time, he just assumed something really traumatic must have happened in Kimberly's life. Something really terrible, and he just didn't want to make things worse. As time went on, though, things between Kimberly and her in-laws only got worse. She kept finding reasons to continue to distance herself by constantly finding things wrong with Blake's family and the way that they did things. She took everything personally and constantly complained to Blake about them. Eventually, she came to the point where she didn't want her daughter visiting with any of them. For Blake, this was heartbreaking. He had always been so close with his family, and by the summer of 2010, he was done. He left their home in Leonard and moved back with his parents. He subsequently filed for divorce, and then Kimberly began to really fall apart. Neighbors who really didn't see Kimberly all that often eventually did get a glimpse of her sometime after Blake had left, and neither she nor her daughter, who was two years old at the time, neither of them looked well. Both of them looked very thin and frail. Kimberly also seemed to panic and was really out of it a lot of the time. When her one neighbor, Denny, tried to talk to her, she was agitated and incoherent. He asked her to come down to the church where he was the pastor for some counseling. She agreed, and with her she had several notebooks, and she kept asking over and over again what was wrong with her and how could she get Blake back. When she sat down, she could not for a moment keep her hands still. She was either moving them or fidgeting or playing with her hair or she would just stare at her hands. And then she would put them in her lap and soon it would happen all over again. And she kept repeating the same sentences over and over, talking about herself and Blake, and then again, her and Blake, and again. It was as if her mind was stuck on a loop, like a broken record. Blake came in for counseling too, and he mentioned that he thought perhaps Kimberly appeared as though she had obsessive compulsive disorder, and he had known her to have been medicated for either ADHD or Tourette's syndrome. But the odd thing was, when Blake did come to counseling, he brought his twin, David, with him, and David did nearly all the talking. 
The counseling did little to help the marriage. Kimberly was stuck obsessing over particular things, and that's how it stayed, just stuck. There was no pulling away from her what she was obsessing over in any moment. A couple of months later, sometime in the fall of 2010, Kimberly began emailing threats to the Ruff family. Then, at one custody exchange, Kimberly had been very loud and belligerent and caused a huge scene. Then, following that particular exchange of their daughter, the Ruffs noticed that they had lost one of their house keys. They began to suspect Kimberly was coming into their home uninvited using that stolen key. They went to court and asked the judge to order Kimberly to cease and desist. Then, on Christmas Eve of 2010, Blake's dad had gone outside to get his morning paper, and in the driveway, he saw a black SUV parked, engine running. He went inside and called police. It was Kimberly. She had committed suicide by shooting herself. Police would later find an 11-page letter written to Blake and another one to her daughter sealed with instructions for it to be opened when she turns 18. According to police, the letters were filled with nonsensical ramblings. They were under the impression that Kimberly was a very disturbed person. The family did not wait very long after Kimberly died to get into the Leonard house so they could finally have a chance to see what, if anything, they could find, as Kimberly had kept so much from them for so many years. She had to be hiding something. What they found inside was evidence of someone who had lost the will to live. The place was in squalor. Dishes and dirty laundry piled up everywhere. Everything was soiled, including their daughter's bed. There were piles and piles of papers, some shredded, some scrawled on, with scrawlings on top of scrawlings. Finally, Blake headed to the places where Kimberly did not allow him to go. For years, there were several things that Blake was told to never touch, and he dutifully listened. And hidden at the bottom of a closet was one of them, a security box that was labeled Crafts. Once the box was pried open with a screwdriver, its contents would ultimately reveal the secrets Kimberly McLean, the woman the Ruffs had known as Lori Kennedy, had been keeping from them. In the box, they found the birth certificate of Becky Sue Turner from Fife, Washington, and they found Becky Sue's Idaho identification card. They also found court documents in Texas from 1988 that Becky Sue had legally changed her name to Lori Kennedy. Also in the box were some pages from an Arizona phone book, some scraps of papers with notes scrawled on them, and the name of an attorney, and the words 402 months. Okay, great. Now they know what Kimberly had been hiding from the roughs all these years that her true identity was Becky Sue Turner, and she was from Fife, Washington. But they still wanted to keep digging. I mean, they knew who she was now, but still, there are so many questions. Starting with, why did she go to such great lengths to hide her true identity? Well, the family turned to a neighbor who also happened to be a private investigator. 
It didn't take long for him to come back with some information that only added another layer of mystery. Becky Sue Turner is dead, and a long time ago dead. He had found the 1971 headline, Three Children Die in Fire at Five. Becky Sue was one of them. She was two. The roughs came to realize that whoever Kimberly was, she knew what she was doing. She took over the identity of a child who was born in one state, lived and died in another state, and obtained an ID of that child in yet another state. The chances of connecting all of those dots, even in the late 80s, were slim. Social Security Administration investigator Joe Velling was tasked with figuring out who this woman was before she became Becky Sue and Lori Kennedy. A woman he would refer to as his investigation progressed as Jane Doe. And it was a mystery that would gnaw him for more than two years. This was his job to track down identity theft fraudsters. But Jane Doe, it wasn't so much about what she did or would be accused of, but rather, who the heck is she? Whatever the case, her story was indeed bewildering. Because no matter where Velling looked, no matter how many of his connections and resources that he tapped, he arrived at a dead stop at 1988 at every turn. He could not find anything prior to that. Jane Doe had done a phenomenal job of burying her past. So finally, he reached out to a colleague who worked for the newspaper and offered up a potential for a story. And this is what Velling was able to uncover. She obtained that Idaho ID card in Becky Sue's name in 1988. So Velling surmised that his Jane Doe may have been from somewhere in the northwestern part of the United States. She also maintained a post office box in Boulder City, Nevada, from which she had all of her mail forwarded to herself in Dallas. After obtaining the Idaho ID, she went to a court in Texas and changed her name to Lori Erica Kennedy. Then she obtained the Social Security card, and once she got that number, she was essentially a whole new person. When all was said and done, it took all of two months for Jane Doe to become a whole new person. The GED she earned allowed her to get into college without having to prove anything about where she went to high school, and she would eventually graduate from the University of Texas at Arlington with that business degree. Velling did find some friends from college, but nobody that knew her prior to the early 90s. Next, Velling turned to the other items in her strongbox. She had some referral letters from a former employer as well as a landlord. And amongst the scribbles were the words North Hollywood Police, 402 months, and Ben Perkins, who was an attorney. So Velling began to put together what these things may have possibly meant. Did she get into some sort of legal trouble? Was she looking at the possibility of 402 months in prison? Was Ben Perkins her defense lawyer? Velling contacted Ben Perkins, but he had no idea who she was. He entered Jane Doe's photo into every facial recognition database out there. No matches. He ran her fingerprints in the FBI database. Nothing. 
Fingerprints were sent to the Department of Homeland Security. Still nothing. If Jane Doe had been facing prison time, her fingerprints would have popped up. As for the reference letters and the job reference, it was all fake. And I searched, and for the life of me, I could not find any theories even of what 402 months stood for. Velling did find out that Jane Doe had breast implants. He chased down that lead, but she obtained them after she became Lori Kennedy, so that was another dead end. He then took samples of Jane Doe's DNA and ran that through databases. Still nothing. He then entered her information into NamUs as well as Ancestry.com, hoping to match her DNA to some family members, and he would just have to wait for something to pop up. In the meantime, he continued having articles about her periodically ran in various newspapers, hoping that someone would come forward. So fast forward to 2015. Nuclear physicist and forensic genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick got in touch with Velling. She had been following this case and had been researching it on her own. She found that Jane Doe's DNA matched up with a first cousin in Philadelphia named Mike Cassidy. Fitzpatrick told Velling to get in touch with the Cassidy family. There might be some answers there. But instead of calling... Velling traveled to Philadelphia to talk with the family in person. When he made contact with Mike Cassidy, he showed him the driver's license with Lori Ruff's photo on it, and he said, my God, that's Kimberly. He confirmed that the woman known as Lori Ruff, Becky Sue, and Jane Doe was Kimberly McLean, the daughter of Deanne Cassidy and James McLean. She ran away from her Pennsylvania home when she was 18. Deanne's brother told Velling that when her parents separated in 1980, Kimberly became a very angry young woman. She was irate over having to move and start again at a new school and finally told her mother, who had by then remarried, that she was leaving and was never coming back. And she never did. Dreamers, there is something about when a person gives themselves the gift of a brand new identity. There's something profound that happens. It's like this sudden rush, an immense feeling of freedom comes over a person who is looking to escape for whatever reason, whether it be a dissatisfaction with one's previous life or an attempt at running from the law or if there are some mental health issues plaguing that person. A new identity gives them a brand new, fresh start. Freedom from whatever it was they felt was holding them prisoner in their previous life. But with that new identity, what they don't seem to think or feel is a part of their new reality, is the fact that in walking away from their old life and into a new one, They are essentially entering into a new kind of prison, and it can easily turn into something more constricting, more binding, more captive than the previous existence, and it is a trap of their own making. Being someone they are not is living in a perpetual state of constant lies and deceptions. 
You are always looking over your shoulder. The paranoia can be crazy making. You could even begin to think that your own mind is playing tricks on you. No matter how long, how far, how deep your lies run, eventually your old self will have to come back to life, whether by your own choice or by force. And that is exactly what we are going to see here happen today in this 93rd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Fugitive. I'm going to tell you the story of an upper middle class suburban San Diego wife and mother named Marie Walsh. I read an article that described her as living the American dream, but I really don't want to pigeonhole being a happily married mom to three kids who spends her free time horseback riding, playing bridge and tennis in suburbia as the American dream. And even if this sounds like a dream life to you, I have some news for you. Marie Walsh is a fake, a fraud, a shyster. Her real name is Susan Lefevre. And for 32 years, she had been a fugitive from justice, running from the law, hiding out, pretending to be someone who she wasn't. And this isn't a story like Kimberly McLean, who likely struggled with mental health issues beginning very early in life. No, this woman found herself in some trouble with the law. An opportunity to run presented itself, and she took it. Now granted, she was very young, and once we discussed what she says happened all those years ago, we might find ourselves sympathetic to her plight, if you believe her. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, but I kind of, sort of have a lot of doubts about her story. A big part of what bothers me as well is the deception when it came to her family and children. But let's go through her story first, and then we can decide how we feel when it comes to Susan. In 1975, when Susan was 19, she was busted for selling 2.5 grams of heroin to an undercover Michigan state trooper in a sting operation. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in state prison. But what the prosecutors and the judges had to say about her case and what Susan had to say about it were two vastly different things. As they tell it, she was a drug dealer. And to that, Susan would say, not so fast. She was a drug user. She admitted while she was in high school, she smoked weed and took diet pills and tranquilizers. Then the summer prior to her arrest, she began using cocaine and heroin. She would describe her drug use as experimenting, trying different things to see what she liked. She said she was a follower, doing what other people were doing. As for selling drugs, no way. She never sold drugs and would say anyone who knew her, of all of her friends, none of them would say she was a drug dealer either. By this time, Susan was attending community college, and it was the friends that she made there. They were the ones who had all the drug connections, not her. She claimed that she had no direct connection with anyone who dealt drugs, much less dealing the drugs herself. She says she got all of her drugs from her friends. 
Though there were times, she explained, that she would go and pick up the drugs for her friends from their connections. They were the ones who were deeply involved in the drugs. She called them more sophisticated. So she was happy to help when they needed it, so she'd go pick up the drugs for them. Soon, she said, the whole lifestyle was getting out of hand, so she decided to move to an apartment to get away from the friends and the drinking and the drugs. Now, right here is where her story starts to sound a little iffy to me. She goes into a great deal of effort to sort of attempt to keep herself on the periphery of everything. Like she used drugs, but she didn't sell them, but she'd go get them for others. And I can't say I've had a whole lot of experience with stuff like this. Not really any at all. But when I think about it, it doesn't really make all that much sense to me and I'm skeptical. And I'm usually a benefit of the doubt kind of person, but this time, Susan is kind of a stretch. Let's pick apart what she's claimed thus far. She said she used drugs, but she's the follower. She got into cocaine and heroin, but she got her drugs from her college friends, and they were the ones who got the drugs from the dealers. Now, I may be inclined to believe this if this was a group thing that they were doing, getting some drugs so they could get together and party together with everyone pitching in. So everyone else is always willing to go out of their way to buy the drugs every single time except for Susan. And they'd be willing to let her join in using the drugs without ever having to put herself out there with the possibility of getting in trouble, buying the stuff and transporting it back, right? So that's one thing that we would have to believe. Next, she described her college friends as more sophisticated than her. So it leads me to suspect that Susan is attempting to portray herself as more inexperienced and naive so she can kind of sort of play dumb when it comes to all this illegal drug use. And in the same breath that she said it was her friends with all the connections and they were the ones that got the drugs, she said she picked up drugs for her friends all the time. So which is it? To me, it just kind of sounds like her friends' connections are her connections too, because you're not just going to show up at your friend's dealer's place looking to buy stuff without being totally aware of who you're dealing with and what you're doing. But maybe not. I don't know. I guess it depends on the person and the drug dealer. Then Susan said her lifestyle got carried away, so she moved to an apartment. Like, what does that even mean? I'm assuming since she was attending community college that she was likely still living at home, but that is an assumption. She never said she was living with college friends. But even if she was living with her parents or college friends, moving to an apartment really isn't all that conducive of quote-unquote getting away. If anything, for a person headed down the path that it seems Susan was at at that time in her life, just barely into her first year in community college, going to an apartment isn't going to keep your drug friends away it's more likely to continue attracting them because they already know that you're down with what they're doing. And if she was still living at home with her parents, then I'm going to say moving away to an apartment is not indicative of wanting to get away from the drug and partying lifestyle. It's indicative of wanting to get away from her parents. But again, this is speculation on my part. However, what ended up happening next, I think only boosts my theory that the move to the apartment 
was not an attempt to distance herself from the drugs and drinking, but rather an attempt to be able to continue her drug use and drinking unimpeded, most likely by her parents. Because guess what happened only one week after she moved to her new place? She was busted. So when Susan said her lifestyle was getting carried away and she moved to an apartment to get away from the drinking and drugs, I don't believe her. And in discussing what actually went down, Susan said something I think is very odd. In talking about the evening that she was arrested, her friend Richie came by her apartment and she stated, he right away brought out a joint. Even though I'd move away from my friends to get away from them, I was very glad to see this joint because I hadn't found one in my boxes, any kind of dope at all to use. So we smoked the joint and we were talking. I don't exactly know why that whole statement sounded weird to me. Because I do think packing your weed or your dope in your moving boxes is strange. But then Susan is kind of a strange person. But okay. So packing her weed in her moving boxes could have been a thing. But don't you think she would have remembered where she kept her stash? If she did pack it, wouldn't she have known where she put it? Like, oh, this box has my kitchen stuff. Dishes, check. Silverware, check. Pans, check. Pot, check. And pot, check. But apparently she had hoped to find any other kind of dope in her boxes, but didn't. Okay, but maybe she's just weird and does random stuff like that. I don't know. So anyway, as they are talking and smoking, Richie got the munchies and suggested pizza. And again, she really explained things kind of in a strange way. She said she said no. She didn't want to go, but he was persistent and insisted that they go. Then Susan said, I was eventually just okay, whatever. I was kind of hungry. Now here it feels she's attempting to deflect responsibility. Like if the premise was to go get pizza, but it was a ruse to cover up the real purpose of the trip, which was apparently to sell some heroin, then she's attempting to distance herself from the plan and the desire to go, lending to her story that she wasn't part of the drug deal that eventually would take place, that it was her intentions to go do what Richie supposedly said that they were going to do, get pizza. And then she said she was hungry, so why would it be that hard to convince her to go grab some pizza? But if the plan was to go sell some drugs, then maybe she might have needed a little more persuading, if any at all, because this is, of course, only her version of what took place that night. So Susan and Richie headed over to the pizza place. She said she waited in the car while he went inside to get the pizza. And again, how she described what happened next to me is strange. She said, I looked up and saw Richie in the restaurant behind the glass. I said to myself, what am I doing here and what is happening now? He can't even get a pizza. Now, dreamers, let me again pick apart what she is saying here. Why is she saying to herself, what am I doing here? You are there by your own admission, supposedly to get a pizza. You said so yourself. Richie asked, 
Eventually you agreed to go because you said you were a little hungry. Why is this moment in need of such deep reflection, like what am I doing here? You might ask yourself that if you were doing something you knew you shouldn't be doing. For example, if I had a friend that said to me, Hey, I know that so-and-so is out of town. Let's go rob their house. I'd probably say no. I don't want to do that. Or at the very least hesitate, right? But my friend is persistent. And for whatever reason, against my better judgment, I might somehow be talked into this plan that I know is a terrible idea. But stupid me goes along anyway, right? And I get there and I don't go inside because I know this is risky and I know this is likely to end badly. So I choose to wait outside. And while I'm waiting, I'm watching the house and looking at it, knowing my friend is in there as a result of some bad choices doing some bad things. I might be sitting in the car asking myself, what the hell am I doing here? But if my friend had asked me if I wanted to go grab some Froyo and I was like, yeah, okay, I could use a treat. And we're at the yogurt shop and I'm sitting outside waiting because I decided to wait in the car. If I'm looking at my friend inside swirling us some yogurt and toppings, I'm not going to be sitting in the car asking myself the deep question of what am I doing here? I'm there to get yogurt, just like Susan was there supposedly to get pizza. But if our friends were up to no good, then we might start questioning our life choices. And then Susan asked herself the other question, what is happening now? Again, it feels like an attempt to distance herself from what's going on inside. Because it's pizza. Unless they called ahead, it's going to take a while to make. Even then, you might still have to wait a while. This is not fast food. She should know what's happening. He's got to order. He's got to wait. Pizzas don't magically bake in five minutes. So what I've inferred from this, and this is only my opinion, you're free to form your own opinion and share it with us in social media. But not only is she attempting to distance herself from what's really happening inside because she knew what was happening. And this is, of course, her narrative in the present time now that she's been caught and exposed as being a fugitive from justice. She's distancing herself and she's sitting in the car agitated, impatient, and possibly even nervous. And we are talking here about a woman who, by her own admission, just finished smoking a joint. She's about to get pizza. What the heck does she have to be so weird and exasperated about waiting in the car? Well, if they are doing what she was ultimately accused of doing, which is drug dealing, well, then she has a lot to be weird and exasperated about then. She's paranoid. And she wouldn't be that way if she were simply waiting for pizza. And then Susan said, he can't even get a pizza. Why is she even questioning her friend's ability to get a pizza? Really? Is she really sitting in the car pondering this? Honestly, I doubt it. And going back to what we speculated already, if she's agitated, impatient, annoyed, and paranoid, is she really thinking he can't even get a pizza? Or could she be thinking, 
He can't even finish this drug deal so we can get out of here. She is clearly anxious and this is taking too long and it's probably because they're engaging in activities that are going to get them in lots of trouble, not because the pizza is taking too long. So Susan got out of the car, ostensibly to go inside to see what's taking the wink wink pizza so long, when all of a sudden she's surrounded by the SWAT team, according to her. She described it like this. They came out from the shadows from behind the counters, rifles, military gear, and pointed the rifles right at me and Richie. They put Richie against the wall, then they handcuffed me. They put me in one car, put him in another, and we were arrested. It is worth mentioning that when Susan did an interview with Oprah, She said that she didn't want to go inside with Richie because it was cold and she wanted to wait in the car. But then she said it started getting too cold in the car, so she decided to go inside the restaurant too. So in this version, she made her decision to sit in the car and then ultimately go inside a bit more innocuous as opposed to the first story where she's aggravated and impatient and decided to go in because it's taking too long. The it was cold story Sounds a little bit better for Susan's narrative. Okay, obviously this was a planned bust. We said in the beginning that Susan was arrested for selling heroin to an undercover Michigan state trooper. And if she was telling it accurately, then apparently the SWAT team was standing by waiting for the sale to go down so they could come in and make the bust. I don't know if it was the actual SWAT team because it had barely just been established in the mid-60s for purposes of suppressing civil uprisings and riots. Would the SWAT team be deployed to take down a couple of teenagers selling heroin in an undercover sting? I don't know. It could be. She could have been exaggerating, or Michigan law enforcement just wasn't messing around when they set Richie and Susan up for the sting, because if they were considered to be a couple of serious drug dealers, they also could have been considered dangerous as well. Susan denied ever selling drugs to an undercover cop, but apparently her family and her attorney, according to her, told her it would be best if she just pleaded guilty which she would eventually go on to do, but we'll circle back to that in a minute. She said the prosecutor on the case first attempted to get her to cooperate in a sting to set up an ex-boyfriend of hers, but she said she refused to do so, despite the fact that, according to Susan, the prosecutor spent a good deal of time screaming at her and that it went on and on. Now remember, this is her telling of what occurred. I don't know if she had spoken to an attorney yet. It kind of sounds like she didn't. But this whole thing doesn't sound like something a prosecutor would do, this yelling at a criminal defendant. If this is happening, it leads me to believe Susan did not have an attorney present. And what's more, it doesn't seem like that's really the role of the prosecutor to begin with. But just to make sure, I looked it up. I found this article on www.law.ua.edu entitled The Prosecutor's Dilemma. Can a criminal defendant be interviewed outside the presence of an attorney? This is what the article said. 
This deals with a problem that may confront any attorney, but is most critical for attorneys acting as prosecutors. Can a prosecuting attorney interview a criminal defendant without the presence of the defendant's attorney? The time pressures inherent in the prosecutorial capacity can lead to shortcuts, which at times may straddle the line of propriety. What are the standards that courts apply from both constitutional and ethical viewpoints to control prosecutorial access to a criminal defendant? The nature of the prosecutorial function places a prosecuting attorney in a position where he or she is the servant of two masters. The prosecutor must heed constitutional guarantees of due process for a defendant, as well as various legislative constraints upon his conduct. But in addition to his or her role as a legal representative of the government, the prosecutor remains an attorney and is subject to the rules of professional conduct. Communication with a defendant by any governmental agent without the presence of his or her attorney is, at best, constitutionally questionable. This is the clear import of the line of the United States Supreme Court decisions such as Miranda v. Arizona. However, the Supreme Court has dealt with prosecutorial interrogation only tangentially because this case directly addressed only the actions of investigating police officers. Lower courts have attempted to resolve the question of the admissibility of statements obtained by prosecutors in the absence of the defendant's counsel. Okay, so my takeaway from that is this. The prosecutor is probably only ever going to step in to interrogate a defendant if their attorney is present. And if the attorney is present, he or she will most likely advise their client to remain silent. So the prosecutor going in there and yelling and screaming at Susan, making demands and whatnot, would likely have that prosecutor in violation of Susan's constitutional rights and in turn jeopardizing the entire case against her. But then we are talking more than four decades ago. Police tactics are not as heavily scrutinized as they are now. I don't even know if they were regularly recording interrogations back then. So the prosecutor could have come in yelling and screaming, making demands or whatever, and nobody would have ever known except for Susan's words. And they're going to bank on her being way too intimidated by them to ever really know or understand that her rights were being violated. Eventually, according to Susan, the prosecutor gave up and said, okay, if you plead guilty, we'll give you probation. And if this is the case, then her family and her attorney advising her to take that deal would make some sense. But here's the thing. Susan is adamant. She did not sell drugs to anyone that night. She is not a drug dealer at all whatsoever. If she is screaming from the mountaintops that she is innocent, would she really up and plead guilty all that easily? Would her family and her attorney People who are supposed to believe in her, go ahead and tell her to plead guilty too? We've talked about this in the Facebook group before. Well, I'm not sure if it was regarding pleading guilty, but the idea of confessing to something that you didn't do. False confessions. A guilty plea when a person insists they are innocent is a type of false confession, especially if that person is really innocent, right? But here is my problem. If Susan was an innocent bystander in this whole ordeal, 
if Richie was the one selling drugs and not her, all of that would have been sussed out following their arrests. If drugs and money were never exchanged with Susan by the undercover cop, if drugs and money were never in her possession during that bust, then the cops really have nothing on her then. If her hands were totally clean, she should have walked. And if it was going to go to trial, then she should have maintained her innocence. I have a hard time believing that Susan would plead guilty unless she could not refute the case against her. Now, we do know this to be a fact based on the actual court transcripts. The judge asked Susan a total of six times if she was certain that she wanted to plead guilty telling her a total of four times that she could be sentenced to the maximum sentence of 20 years. Yes, Your Honor, she is sure as the day is long that she wants to plead guilty. She had been promised a deal of probation, so let's just get this over with, give her the probation, and she'll be on her way. Well, not so fast, Susan. Apparently, according to her, the judge did not like what he was seeing before him. He thought that was way too lenient for a heroin dealer. She's pleading guilty. So, in the eyes of the judge, that is exactly what she is. Guilty of being a low-life drug dealer. He wasn't going to allow her to conduct herself in this manner and get away with it with a slap on the wrist. According to Susan the judge was determined to make an example out of her. If you sell drugs, you're going to prison for a long time. She was sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Everybody was shocked. How could this be? We see cases all the time where deals are struck between the prosecutor and the defense, and they show up for court to make it official. And usually the judge just goes along. Not this time. It's not often the judge is at odds with the prosecutor when he or she accepts a deal. Like, for example, with the trial that's going on right now in Northern California for the case of the fire at the ghost ship warehouse that we covered last year. A deal had been struck, but after a judge felt as though the two defendants seemed to lack remorse, he tossed the deal into the trash and ordered them to trial. So it can happen, especially in a case like this. The defendants do something in between the court hearings and the sentencing that pisses the judge off. He will throw your deal into the garbage. And it seems that is exactly what happened to Susan. Except both the prosecutor and her own defense attorney have both publicly gone on record stating that probation was never promised in exchange for a guilty plea. Her defense attorney did acknowledge that the sentence of 10 to 20 years was a surprise, but was adamant. No probation was ever offered in exchange for a guilty plea, and I believe him. Even when he discussed it years later, he was certain of it, and the prosecutor continued to maintain the same thing. The only person who has made this claim has been Susan, and this is either one of two things. Either what she said about the prosecutor yelling and screaming at her was true, and in the midst of this conversation, the possibility of being sentenced to probation in exchange for a guilty plea was offered, which, if the yelling did actually happen, it didn't take place in the presence of her attorney because that would not be allowed, 
and the deal would have had to have been worked out with her attorney's full knowledge. Either that happened or she's not telling the truth. Is it possible her defense attorney and the prosecutor are misremembering? Yeah, it's possible. They've both probably seen their fair share of criminal defendants throughout the decades before Susan and after. For both of them to have the same recollection has me leaning towards believing them. And what really would either one of them have to gain from not recalling the truth as to their interactions with Susan? Nothing. And for Susan, what does she have to gain from making the claim she was offered probation? Well, it casts her as a victim of an unfair justice system, an overzealous prosecutor who was using intimidation, coercion, and false promises in order to get her to admit to her guilt, only to have the judge throw the book at her hard. According to Susan, to make an example out of her, sending a message to all the other drug dealers out there that you're going to go away for a long time if you commit these types of crimes. Saying she was promised probation only to have it taken away and given so many years in prison also serves as a justification for what she was going to do once she began serving her time. And we'll get back to that in a minute as well. In her sworn testimony to the court, Susan said that the heroin was kept at her apartment and she admitted that the plan was for her and Richie to sell it and they'd divvy up the proceeds. Susan claimed that she was told that if she agreed to make that statement under oath, she would go free. And she says that's exactly what they told her. Do what we say and you'll skate with probation only. Years later, the undercover state trooper that took Susan into custody that night said it all those years ago and he would say it today. Susan Lefevre is a drug dealer, period. Susan was sent to serve out her time at a Michigan prison. Within a year, she described herself as becoming desperate. She was having suicidal ideation and hoped that somehow she would be able to find the strength to go through with it. In that year, she said not one person came to visit her, not even her family. Which, if true, is really heartbreaking. But if her family was encouraging her to plead guilty, thinking she would be getting probation... When all of that kind of backfired, I don't know why they would choose not to visit not one time for the first year of her incarceration. But this would not go on forever. One day, Grandpa showed up to visit Susan. She was hoping he was coming with good news that maybe they were getting ready to appeal her sentence, but no. Grandpa came bearing some pretty bleak news. Nothing was happening. Nobody is coming to help her case. And the state was building a new maximum security prison and they were worried she was going to be sent there. I don't know, dreamers. Grandpa seems like kind of a downer coming around to bringing all this negativity. Maybe he just wanted to keep it real. Or maybe Grandpa is a badass and had a plan all along. He told her, girl, you need to escape. And she was like, I'm down. Let's do this. And they started coming up with a plan. But in retelling the story some years later, she doesn't exactly recall how it was they coordinated everything. I'm assuming she and Grandpa were able to talk discreetly when discussing this. Otherwise, I don't know how else they'd be able to come up with this plan. They settled on a day, and Grandpa would be waiting in his car, if she could pull it off. 
So the day came. They had waited for the cold months to pass so there would be no snow on the ground where her tracks could be easily seen. She had an assigned job at the prison where she was supposed to go outside before dawn. She said there were guard towers, but they weren't really manned at that time of day. Instead, a helicopter flew over the prison grounds until officers were in the towers. So she pretty much had the opportunity to run without really being seen if she timed it right. All she had to do was get over the barbed wire. She took off her jacket, tossed it over the barbed wire, and climbed over it, jumped down, and ran. She headed towards some woods, hiding close to a tree when she heard helicopters pass overhead. She finally made it to Grandpa's waiting car, and now she was a fugitive, and she would stay that way for a really long time. Susan left Michigan and headed west to California. While in prison, though, she was able to get herself cleaned up off of drugs. She attended a counseling program and came to a place to understand that her drug use had crossed the line from partying to a full-blown drug problem and she needed to change that, especially now that she was free. The only way to stay free was to stay clean. And that was not the only thing she needed to change. She had to not be Susan Lefebvre anymore. She wanted a new identity, but I even go further to say she wanted a whole new life, which is probably why she chose California. She began going by the name Marie, but we are going to refer to her by her real name throughout this episode. After she got to California, she didn't do what Kimberly McLean did. She didn't look through the obituaries for a dead toddler close to her age to take the identity of. She would get a job and just put whatever information on the application, including some random numbers for the social security number. Eventually, her employer would come to her with some issues with her paperwork. She'd stall for a bit, telling them that she would be able to figure it out. And when time ran out, she would move on to a new job and do it all over again. She never did have a valid name with a valid social security number. And time passed. Months turned into years, turned into decades. But no matter how much time passed, Susan never got complacent about her status as a fugitive. But she also tried to not allow it to affect her quality of life either, stating, I said to myself, what's the use of going over barbed wire and going through this if you're going to be worried every day? I just have to leave it into the hands of fate or a higher power. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And as the years wore on, she did keep in contact with her mom and dad. She said they were incredibly supportive of her and believed in her innocence and that she was unjustly convicted. I want to stop here and ponder this for a moment. Her parents were totally supportive, believed in her innocence, and that she was wrongly convicted, but they encouraged her to plead guilty. And once she was sent to jail for 10 to 20 years, they never visited her not once in the year that she was incarcerated. That, none of that makes any sense to me. Maybe it was too difficult for them to want to go to prison and see their daughter in that situation. That is a valid reason, but still, it's their child. But then I thought about this. I thought about the angsty relationship I have with my mom. 
I've told you about the troubled history we've had, and if for some reason I ended up in prison, she would never visit me. I have no doubt about that. And I'm certain I would not want her to visit either. So what do we know about Susan as a teenager leading up to her incarceration? She had a history of illegal drug use. Admittedly, over time, she escalated from marijuana and diet pills to cocaine and heroin. When she got into counseling, she admitted that it had gone from casual partying to a full-blown drug problem. She moved away from home, and I speculated it was to get away from her parents so she could be more free to party, but that is just a guess. I can't say what her relationship with her mom and dad was like leading up to her arrest, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was more bad than good. They must have been sorely disappointed and hurt and sad, maybe even angry about Susan's behavior and lifestyle. And if that was the case, then them not visiting for the first year makes some sense. But now that she's a fugitive, they're supportive? Really? Maybe. It could be they wanted the best for her. And maybe being free, no matter how she got free, was it. Maybe they were glad she wasn't in jail anymore because she wasn't their problem now that she was halfway across the country. Whatever the case... Susan was now a Californian named Marie. Nine years into the fugitive life in 1985, Susan would meet a man named Alan. And he was pretty smitten with her because their relationship progressed quickly. She said that she tried to explain to him that she used to have a serious drug problem, that it involved an ex-boyfriend who got her into drugs. And again, she's taking the burden of responsibility off herself and placing it onto someone else. Full method Susan, am I right? She said Alan wasn't interested in hearing all the gory details. To him, the past was the past. He wanted to move forward and look to the future. And just like Kimberly had found Blake, a man who would just take her at face value, Susan was able to find the same thing in Alan. Just a go-with-the-flow kind of guy who's just not going to ask that many questions. Ten months after they met, Alan asked Susan's dad for her hand in marriage. Of course, he had no idea he was sleeping with the fugitive. And she wasn't just keeping a little secret. This was a big secret. A doozy. All he knew were the basics that she had told him an old boyfriend that was really no good and a drug problem. He didn't want to keep having to dwell on that. What was the point? So they got married and they would go on to have three children, all the while Susan's keeping her secret a secret. And then some bad news came. Susan's mom fell ill. She got word that her condition was grave, so she headed back to Michigan to visit her and she made it just in time for her mother to pass away in her arms. Alan could see Susan was beside herself, which is why he was confused when Susan told him that she would not be attending the funeral, stating, her mother died in her arms and she was devastated by it. That's how she explained it to me. She didn't want to go through the funeral. She'd already been through this traumatic period and I respected it. I didn't understand it, but I respected it. She saw it a bit more harsh than her husband saw it, stating, 
He thought I was kind of a monster for not going. Why would I even suggest not going to my own mother's funeral? Who would do that? And we all know why she didn't go. But even the passing of her mom didn't compel her to finally come with the truth that she had been deceiving her husband and then her children all these years. And all those years turned into more than 30 in total. Three decades would come and go before Susan's long-buried secrets would catch up with her. It was April of 2008. She was working in her garden when some officers pulled up to her house. They approached and said, Are you Susan Lefebvre? No, she answered, That's not me. They showed her a photograph of herself taken back in the 70s, and they told her, We know it's you. They were there to arrest Susan. She said, So I had these two worlds, this terrible, terrible, destructive world, a corrupting world of prison, and then this idyllic world. When he showed me the picture and said, Susan Lefebvre, I knew that they had finally collided. And her statement about this, dreamers, kind of annoys me because she's made this all about herself. This idyllic world, right? But she failed to mention that she made the worlds of four other people, namely her husband and her three children. She just turned their worlds into terrible, terrible, destructive worlds, a corrupted world of her own making. And that's just really sad and disappointing, especially for her children. She was not placed in handcuffs right away. And isn't it nice how some criminal defendants get special treatment like this? I mean, really? She's a fugitive from justice for more than 30 years and they're not going to put her in handcuffs? I mean, come on. These cops were willing to be as discreet as possible as she lived on this fancy cul-de-sac and it was easy for her uppity neighbors to look out their windows and see what was going on up and down the street. They allowed her to go upstairs and take off her jewelry so all her stuff would be nice and safe at home. God, that's so annoying. Anyway, one of her daughters was at home when all of this was happening and when she saw her mother being taken into custody, the poor thing, she broke down into tears. And she said this to her daughter, I'll be back, I'll be all right. I really don't know if that was all that reassuring for her daughter. And Susan gets more privileges from these officers as they allow her to call her husband from the house before they left. He was at work and she told him that the police were at the house and they were there to take her to jail. <sighs> Dreamers, I can't help but feel how much she victimized her family. I just picture Alan sitting there at work, going through his day, probably having his coffee, and all of a sudden he gets this news about the woman he's been married to for 22 years or so just calling him out of the blue to tell him that she's being carted off to the pokey. I mean, the guy seemed to genuinely love her. She had told him about some of her unsavory past and he still loved her. If she really loved him the way that he deserved, if she really wanted a future with him forever, she should have put her faith in him that he would stand by her, but she didn't. 
and she chose to continue with her deceit and brought three more human beings in the world to deceive them too. The whole thing just makes me feel terrible. She even had a chance to come with the truth a year before she was arrested. She had caught wind that someone may be looking for her. She had a talk with her family, but she didn't get specific. She told Alan and her kids that there was this thing. She has a problem and it was kind of a big deal, but she couldn't get into the details. She was sort of prepping them for the worst, but she still didn't bring the truth. She could have just taken that chance and told them, especially if she felt like the heat was coming down on her, but she still chose not to. And honestly, I don't know why her family didn't press her hard for more info. If it were me and my spouse told me he had a problem, it was serious, but I can't tell you. I'd be like, you cannot come with me with all this cryptic, vague BS and go about your day all normal, like whatever. I need all the details and I need them immediately or we're going to have problems. I could not rest until he spilled everything. But her family obviously are more understanding than I would or could ever be because they just let it go. Maybe they thought she was some sort of spy or like a double agent and she couldn't tell them or else she'd have to kill them. I can't even begin to imagine what they made of their mom's weirdness and secrecy. And when Alan did find out, don't you think he'd be super pissed off? Yeah, he said he felt some anger, saying, I have to say I initially felt a little betrayed. A little? Okay. Knowing that the mother and wife that I've known for 25 years has been an outstanding mother and a good law-abiding citizen for all the time I knew her, I understood why she kept the secret. What? This guy... Okay, well, kudos to him for being super understanding. He is obviously a better person than me because I am incapable of this level of understanding. Susan was, and is, a very lucky woman. And Susan's children, for their part, whatever they thought their mom was being so secretive about, never imagined she was actually a wanted fugitive. But at least one of her daughters, Maureen, said that when she looks back on it, there were indicators that something was up, stating, I always thought of my mom as such an ambitious woman and smart and intelligent. So I always wondered why she didn't have a normal career. That was one thing I always wondered about. And I just figured she wanted to raise her family and devote herself to that. Maureen had also once discovered a piece of mail that was addressed to her mom with a different name. But she figured maybe her mom had been married before she married her dad. And just like her dad, she figured that Susan would come around someday in her own way, in her own time. Susan was extradited back to Michigan to figure out what the state was going to do with her. By this time, she was 53 years old. The decision as to whether or not she would be made to finish up her sentence of 10 to 20 years was given to the state parole board. 
they would be the ones to determine her fate. Alan described the whole experience as not easy. He really has this way of making difficult and painful things sound annoyingly simplistic. He said, For anybody who has a loved one or a family member that ends up in prison, in a way the entire family is going to prison. You never stop thinking about them. You never stop worrying about what they're dealing with. Alan, you are much too kind, my friend, to a fault, but I get it. It must have been a terribly scary experience seeing their wife and mom in this predicament. This is what she did to her family. She did that. She brought down all this hurt and pain. In a split second, they went from living their normal lives to this because Susan was too selfish to take responsibility. She did everything she could to spare herself the pain and torment of jail, only to thrust her loved ones into the very same pain and torment she tried to evade all those years. And now they're going to have to live with that for many more years than they would have if she had just done the right thing by her family to begin with. We've seen criminal defendants turn themselves in or confess to crimes or plead guilty. They just take their lumps because they don't want to put their family through the grief. Not Susan. The only person's grief she cared to spare was her own. And that's the biggest reason why I'm not a huge fan of what she did. Susan's son, Alan Jr., when she was arrested and taken back to Michigan, he was 16. He said to see her come out and chained by the ankles and hands and in some old rugged jumpsuit and have to talk to her behind a glass window to justify that this woman needs to be put in a cage with a bunch of murderers, it's unbelievable. Clearly, Susan has the undeserved support of her children. And her son, he was only 16 at the time, and oh yeah, for sure, seeing mom like that is a terrible thing for him to have to endure. But again, as he is misguided in his placement of blame on all of this on the state of Michigan, I understand it is difficult, if not impossible, to want to blame someone else other than the person responsible for making him to have to go through this. His mom. He feels sorry for her, and I feel sorry for him. And Susan wrote to her children from jail, and that too caused them a great deal of heartbreak and pain, daughter Marine having stated, It was her greatest fear that not only would her life sort of be ruined, but that our family would just slowly crumble. I had this whole flash of my wedding day and her not being there, and possibly even having my first child and her not being there. I don't know if their family would have crumbled under the weight of the burden their mom brought down on them, but I think they would have been just fine, and it would have had nothing to do with Susan It would have been in spite of Susan. Again, she is very, very lucky her children were and are so deeply supportive of her. Very lucky. And I don't doubt that she was a great mom to them. I don't want to take that away from her. But still, I can't dismiss that everything she did as a wife and mom was under false pretenses. And Susan would luck out again. 
She was given 13 months in jail, getting out of prison legitimately in May of 2009. It was determined that she had led a productive life in the years following her escape. So yeah. And I'm going to agree that that seems fair to me for a couple of reasons. One is Susan was very young when she was arrested. She was only 19. As far as I know, she had no prior arrests before that. She had a drug problem. And if she was dealing drugs or taking part in dealing drugs, then I would imagine it was to help support her drug habit, at least in part. Susan clearly needed help. She was headed down a dangerous path at the time she was arrested. And even she said while in prison, she got the counseling that she needed. And she did lead a very productive life in the years following her escape. I do think she got some bad legal advice from her defense attorney. I don't think he represented her or advocated for her to the best of his ability. And I believe she would have had a strong case for appeal on the grounds of ineffective assistance of counsel. I do agree with her defense attorney at the time that the sentence she received was very harsh. And I understand her desperation to want to get out of there. And clearly her grandpa thought so too. If she ended up spending all that time in jail, I'm pretty sure she would have come out on the other end of that worse off than ever. Maybe escaping was, in a weird way, the best thing for her. But that's not the thing that bothers me. It's dragging four other people down with her that really had me bent out of shape throughout this story. The silver lining in all of this, and there are a couple of them, is the compassion and support and loyalty that Susan's family had for her through all of this. I do find that inspiring. They are strong and good and loving people, and I can only hope that after she got out and went home to them, that she didn't take them or her chance with them for granted. I cannot reiterate enough how lucky this woman is. Another silver lining is that Susan's experience having been sent back to prison has been a wake-up call. It opened up her eyes to the flaws in the justice system, especially when it comes to women, particularly women who are sentenced to prison on drug-related charges. She says many of them were given an obscene amount of jail time because of the dope dealings of their boyfriends or husbands. Just being there even if they weren't involved in what their significant others were doing, they are guilty by association, and Susan sees so much injustice in that. She sees the justice system as a machine that targets the weak and poor, the people who cannot defend themselves against it. If she is advocating or lobbying for changes in legislation, I'm not sure. But she is out there. She's rounded the media circuit and she's written a book. So maybe getting her story out can help facilitate changes to fix some of the cracks in the system. And many, many thousands of people across the United States feel Susan should never have been sent back to prison at all, not because she didn't commit the crime, but because of the life she led in the 32 years that she was a fugitive, though to me, that's debatable. How do you measure the damage that she caused to her husband and her three children, having lied and deceived them all those years? Maybe the legal repercussions need not be so aggressive, but the human cost? You can't put a sentence on that. 
The prosecuting attorney for when Susan was brought back to Michigan in 2008 could not agree less. Of her getting away from her 10 to 20 year sentence, he said, I don't think she was respecting the justice system while she was on the limb for all those years. Our position was that you never filed an appeal for 32 years, so you didn't even have standing to complain about your sentence in the first place. Obviously, she never filed an appeal because she didn't want to be apprehended, and she avoided detection all those years. He feels the biggest injustice is that she was able to avoid serving the time she owed for what she testified to, what she pleaded guilty to, and what she was ultimately sentenced to. He said, I bet you every single person in the prison system in America would like to have the same opportunity to have 32 years of their life. If you're found to have done something wrong, part of the justice in America is paying the penalty. And just the same way everyone else served their sentence, she should have to serve hers too. So dreamers, what do you think? Let me know on social media. Did Susan get what she deserved? Was she too harshly sentenced in 1975? Should she have been given more time upon her recapture? What do you think of her story that she's told? If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we've covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official discussion page. There, we have an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases, as well as other true crime stories, other news events. We are currently following the McStay family trial, and I believe the ghost ship trial as well. So those are two really big stories that we've covered on the show. We also discuss TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries that we've watched, books we've read, And the debate rages on about whether or not Fred is guilty or innocent. He's guilty. So please come and join us for the discussion. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am very proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts, so please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There you can find all the links to our shows, our merchandise store where you can find all the California dreaming stuff, get your t-shirt or your mug or your hoodie, take a pic and post it in our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you just want to email us with your feedback, comments, questions, or to just let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I am your host, Roseanne. And until next time, Sweet dreams. Hello. 
and let me tell you about Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. Your hosts are me, Bob Dale. And me, Nadine Royal. We're a couple of friends who met in the pub and we developed a friendship based on our mutual love of booze, podcasts and pub quizzes. We met in the Settlement in Stirling and that's where we record. Each week we both tell a story of something twisted. One long one and one short one. And we decide who goes first. Based on the flip of a coin. So if that sounds like something that would tickle your fancy, you can always find us wherever you normally find your podcasts. Just search for Twisted Britain. Thanks. Bye. Hey, this is Steve from Great Lakes True Crime. We tell stories from Ohio and the rest of the lower Great Lakes region. Give us a listen on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Great Lakes True Crime.